Last week, as a family, we were sitting around the table eating, and we began talking about architecture and buildings. Our middle son really enjoys architectural features of certain buildings. And we ran around the table and gave the most beautiful, majestic building that we've ever seen in person. For my wife, Sarah, it was when she was a child. Her parents took her on a Europe trip to visit family, and they went to Neuschweinstein Castle in Germany. It's a beautiful castle. Walt Disney and his wife visited that castle and came back so inspired by the fairy tale architecture that they came home and constructed a replica. Maybe you've seen it. Cinderella Castle. It became the centerpiece of Disney World. Haddon, our youngest, said the most majestic, beautiful building he's ever seen was the church we visited last Sunday on vacation. The kids were quite amazed by these ancient architectural pieces called wooden pews. <laughs> they had never seen them before. <laughs> what are these, Mom? Why are they so hard, Mom? Why do they make noise every time you move, Mom? <clears throat> we tried to tell them that all churches in the 40s, 50s, and 60s had wooden pews. And there are even some churches that insist that that's what Jesus used in the, in the first century. <laughs> One of my boys, who will go nameless, likes to hunt and fish and build fires and kill and skin things. Uh, he said the most beautiful, majestic building he's ever seen was Bass Pro Shop. <laughs> We, we took them to the world's largest Bass Pro Shop. <laughs> it's heaven like this, Dad. I, I sure hope not, son. I'm, I'm really out of place if it is. I think some of the most beautiful buildings on the earth are stone buildings. You don't really find stone structures anymore. Houses or castles built entirely of stone. And I don't know why, because natural stone ages beautifully. Uh, with stones, there's an endless supply of colors and textures. Stone will outlast almost any other material. With the exception of wood and mud, stone was most certainly the first construction material used by man. The world's oldest building material, stone, used by the ancients. This week I became curious about stone structures and found that some of the most beautiful, majestic buildings in history were constructed entirely of stone. The Roman Colosseum, located in Rome and built in A.D. 70. It's an amphitheater that seats 50,000 people. It took only eight years to complete this project. Uh, the outer wall was made up of around 3.5 million cubic feet of stone. Now, it's since been ruined by earthquakes, fires, and stone robbers. It was used mainly for gladiator sports. Fun fact, it could actually be flooded with water so one could watch aquatic events. Dan Herbster, our resident historian, says there may have been some Christian persecution in this Colosseum, but most of that took place in Circus Maximus, those stories of Christians being fed to lions. Stonehenge, located in England. Sarah and I have visited this very spot there's a lot of mystery shrouding Stonehenge. Some believe it was used for funerals. Now, Stonehenge is just one of hundreds of stone circles that have been found in Britain. It was most likely used for stargazing. Some of these stones weigh north of four tons. 
It said some were carried over 150 miles to this location. It took eight years to complete the Roman Colosseum. It took 1,500 years to complete Stonehenge. The Greek Parthenon. It took nine years to complete. It was built in the 5th century. It was possibly used as a temple of worship for a false god. It's estimated that over 13,000 stones were used to build this structure. We actually have a full-scale replica less than an hour away in Nashville. Anyone seen it? Quite a few. The Great Pyramid, located in Giza, Egypt. It was built from over 2.3 million stone blocks. It took thousands of people about 25 years to assemble. It's the oldest and last existing seven wonders of the ancient world. Now, so far, I've shown you four ancient stone structures. Now, two modern. The Washington Monument, located in D.C. This monument is the world's largest stone structure, standing at 555 feet. It was started before the Civil War in 1848, but had to stop during the war for lack of funding. It took 30 years to complete. 36,000 stones were used in the construction. And if you take a close look, you can see that it has two different colors. And that's because the stones used came from two different quarries. This monument is actually a, a freestanding masonry, which means there's no cement holding the blocks. The last structure I want to show you is considered the eighth wonder of the world. It's a, it's a magnificent structure built by a, <laughs> a modern-day gladiator <laughs> located in Oak Grove. Stonehenge took 1,500 years to complete. This one uh, felt like it took the same. Uh, the actual sixth stone structure that I want to show you is not this building. It's the Taj Mahal. It's located in India. It took 22 years to complete. It cost a whopping $1 billion in today's numbers. Uh, there are 28 different types of precious and semi-precious stones used in the construction. And the most recognizable feature, of course, is that large dome that sits on top. It's believed that more than 1,000 elephants were used to transport those stones for this feature. I've shown you six stone structures. Now I want to show you a seventh, a perfect stone structure. All six of these previous stone structures represent what humans can build. They are beautiful, but they are temporary. They are big, but they have weaknesses. We find in our text the greatest building project in human history because it has God as its builder. This construction has been in progress for over 2,000 years, actually even longer. It reaches back into the Garden of Eden. I want to pull four truths from today's passage regarding God's stone building. Four truths from today's passage regarding God's stone building. Truth number one. God began his building project with a rejected cornerstone. Verse 4, as you come to him, that's Jesus Christ, as you come to Jesus Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen 
and precious. The Old Testament identifies the Messiah as a stone. Daniel 2, Psalm 18. Paul in Acts 4 said Jesus is the stone. Jesus identified himself as a stone in Mark 12. Peter takes this even further and says that Jesus is a living stone. Previously, he's spoken about a living hope, the living word. Now, a living stone. Stones don't live. They have no vitality flowing through them, no breath. They they don't get larger because they aren't growing. They don't have life. You can evaluate the 26 different types of stone used in the Taj Mahal, but none of them are living. When the disciples were rebuked for praising Christ, Jesus responded, I tell you that if these people should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. What could be more impossible than that? Stones do not speak because they are not alive. But this stone lives. This stone breathes. This stone speaks. We are worshiping an alive Christ. This could be an allusion to the stone being rolled away at his resurrection. The living stone is rejected. Peter points to two building projects, both going on in the first century at the same time that Jesus walked the earth. The first one was the Jews. The Jews were building a stone structure, but they didn't want the living stone, Jesus Christ, to be a part of their structure. The second one is God. God is building a stone structure and he chooses the living stone for his project. Peter is actually quoting Psalm 118.22 where we read the prophetic announcement that the Messiah is the stone that the builders rejected. Stephen Davey points out that the participle Peter uses here for rejecting refers to someone measuring the stone, sizing up the stone, but then decides it doesn't meet their expectations and so they discard the stone as useless. Which is a longer way of saying Jesus doesn't measure up. He isn't what they wanted. Last week, we vacationed in Pigeon Forge and there was a a creek beside the house and and another creek in front of the house. So the two creeks met in one spot and that's where our kids met and caught crayfish and minnows and all types of things. One of our children found a purple stone. He prized the stone. He highly valued that purple stone. I've never seen one quite like it. Another child wanted to see the stone and took it and looked it over and wasn't very impressed and then dropped it on the ground and went looking for other stones. That is the word picture here. They picked up the living stone, looked it over, and then cast it aside. The word rejected has the connotation of being rejected after examination. Jesus was rejected by the religious institution of his day. He was rejected by the majority of society. He was rejected by governmental authorities. He was rejected at his trial. And the climax of his rejection was the crucifixion. It was a national rejection by all the builders, the leaders of Israel, the leaders of the Roman Empire. A living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen 
and precious. What the world considers worthless and discards, we consider priceless and worthy of all delight. Remember the old uh, Ford slogan, built for tough? Well, before built for tough, there was another one. The closer you look, the better it looks. As you evaluate the living stone, the closer you look, the better he looks. Now, that's us valuing Christ, but the text says God valued him. At the baptism of Jesus, God said what? He said, that's my boy, my beloved son. He highly prized Christ. One man's trash is another man's treasure. The Jews' trash was God's treasure. God didn't just put this living stone among all the other stones he's going to use for his building. No, he has a special place for this stone. Look at verse 6. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. Same words, chosen and precious. Same stone, the living stone is the cornerstone. Most of our buildings today do not use stones. We use concrete and steel beams. So we've really lost the value of a cornerstone. Historically, the cornerstone was the first stone set during the building process. Careful measurements were taken to ensure the cornerstone was square because all the other stones were laid in reference to it. The Great Pyramid in Egypt was built this way. They say to this day it's still square. Cornerstones were functional and the whole success of the structure depended on it. If you do see cornerstones today in buildings, they aren't the same. They're typically hollowed out and placed in a prominent location in the front of the building, often having an inscription on it. It's hollowed out because people place important documents or pictures in it. So think ancient functional cornerstone, not modern decorative cornerstone. Why is Peter writing about Jesus in metaphoric language as a stone? Well, did not Jesus tell Peter, upon this stone I will build my church? Peter had just attested to Jesus being the Old Testament promised Messiah. Jesus as Messiah is the cornerstone for God's building. He's the cornerstone. Jesus gives everything in your life alignment. He's the cornerstone. Truth number two. God's building material is living. God's building material is living. Verse five. You yourselves like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. One theologian points out that in the New Testament, a number of names for Jesus in the singular are given to Christians in the plural. He's the Son of God, we're sons of God. He's the Lamb, we're called lambs. He's the light, we're called lights. He's the living stone, and we're called here by Peter, living stones. 
And the word Peter uses for stone isn't just some random collection of stones lying around on the ground. The word used is a reference to stones that have been dug out of the quarry and then shaped and cut so that they fit the builder's purposes. We're not bricks manufactured to all look alike. We are quarried stones, hand-sculpted, chiseled, and crafted for the builder's purposes. Catch the architectural metaphor. You are God's special building project. He's the architect, and we are his building materials. We have an important group identity. It's communal. Every Christian is brought into God's building program. Giza consisted of 2.3 million stones. The pyramid in Giza. God's house, built through the ages, will have more stones. These living stones are not lying around in idle isolation and disorder in Peter's description. They are not heaped up in a pile or scattered across the field. God didn't quarry out any stone for it to be set aside by itself. He put stones together in a building. There's a, a legendary Spartan king who often boasted to visiting monarchs of the great walls of Sparta. However, one visiting monarch could see no actual walls around the city. He looked around and asked, where are the renowned walls of Sparta? The king pointed to his army and said, these are the walls of Sparta. Every man, a brick. Where is God's house? Our good king points to the redeemed and he says, every man, a stone. By the way, those of you who are non-Christians, one day, God's house will be completed. He will quarry his last stone and put it into place and his stone building will be finished. It will take all of human history to complete it, but it will be finished. It could be you, non-Christian. You could be the last stone in God's building project. Repent, dear friend, and run to Christ. This stone building is living. It has blood running through its veins. This building sucks in oxygen. God's architecture is biological. There will always be two building projects going on simultaneously. The world builds its stone structure, seeking to go higher and higher and, and make a name for themselves. And then God builds his stone structure also to make a name for himself. The building materials never change. God doesn't drop stones and move to steel. He's always used stones, people. It's the world's greatest stone building project. R.C. Sproul points out that the church is a body of believers, not a building. That's attested to all throughout the scripture. But now, all of a sudden, Peter gives a metaphor of the church as a building. And Jesus' first mention of the church, he compared it to a building. I will build my church. But the building is not made up of brick and mortar, but living stones, people. 
Each time someone trusts Christ, another stone is quarried. Peter wrote this letter to believers living in five different provinces. Yet, yet he said that they all belong to one spiritual house. There is a unity of God's people that transcends all local and individual assemblies. This is big. This is really big. Because God's people were asking, where do I fit? And God says, I have a place in my house. Verse 5 continues. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual, mark this word, house. The Greek word for house is often used to refer to God's house, the Jerusalem temple. When Peter wrote this, he had in mind the house where God dwells. I'm so glad that uh, the roof is not leaking, aren't you? That is a massive downpour out there. And so since it's raining, I'm just planning on preaching a lot longer, just, just so you know. When Peter wrote this, he had in mind the house where God dwells. This isn't just any old house that God is building. He's building a spiritual house, a new temple. The Old Testament temple was made of dead stones. This one is made of living stones. Think of yourself like living stones of God's new temple. What I am teaching you, Faith Family Church, is what Paul taught the church at Ephesus. He said to them, you are stones of the household of God, built on the foundation of Christ Jesus himself, the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. Peter and Paul clearly identify the church as the new temple. You want to get to God? You want to reach God? You don't go to a house in Jerusalem. You don't go to a house in Rome or Canterbury. You are the new house, the dwelling place of God. Now through Christ's work on the cross to experience the presence of God, you're not visiting a building. You are the building. And the economy of God, in the old economy of God, God's temple was temporal. It was a material house. In his new economy, God's temple is everlasting. It is a spiritual house. Verse 5 goes on to list the privileges that we experience as God's New Testament believers, as God's living stones. Notice as verse 5 continues. To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The moment the Holy Spirit draws you into saving union with Jesus Christ, you experience an explosion of privilege. The first privilege, you're a holy priesthood. Now, when you hear the word priest, what do you think of? If you're Catholic, you probably have a favorable definition of a priest. You hear the word and immediately think of someone in a collar and priestly garb to whom you confess your sins. 
If you're a Baptist and you hear the word priest, the only category you have for it is probably an exorcist from some scary movie. We're Baptist. I want to give you a new category. When you think of a priest, think of a privilege that you possess. A privilege that you possess. The privilege is called the individual priesthood of the believer. The individual priesthood of the believer. In the Old Testament, God's people had a priesthood. But today, God's people are a priesthood. This doctrine was precious to Martin Luther, another stone in God's building. Martin Luther broke away from the Catholic Church and started the Reformation. He put God's word back into the hands of God's people. And it was this verse that made him come to the conclusion that priests were no longer needed. This verse erased their job security. Luther wasn't a fan of the Catholic Church, their priest, or their pope. He said, and I quote, After the devil himself, there is no, we- no worse folk than the pope and his followers. End quote. <laughs> Tell us how you really feel, Martin. The fact that Protestants in the U.S. think that, ca- that, think that the Catholic doctrine is slightly different but mostly the same is appalling to me. Men and women fought so you wouldn't have to be duped by that heresy. And don't minimize it by saying, well, they believe basically, basically the same thing we believe. No. One, Catholics aren't Protestants. Two, if a Catholic, cultural or practicing, believes, believes what the Catholic Church teaches about salvation, not only are they not Protestants, they're not Christians. This is a, was a matter and is a matter of salvation. The whole concepts of priest in the Old Testament... Now, not priest in the Catholic Church. They they invented that nonsense. The whole concept of priest in the Old Testament centered around the presence of God. Only the priest went into the presence of God in the tabernacle and later in the the temple. They, They went in on behalf of God's people. God's people couldn't go in. When Jesus died on the cross, the veil, we sung about it earlier, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. He tore it. There's no more barrier to the presence of God for his people. They can come right on in through the work of Jesus Christ. You don't need a collar or a robe. You need a Christ. I am a priest, but only in the sense that you also are a priest. We all have access to God. These readers are scattered. And Peter is telling them, you can still worship God. You can still enter into the presence of God because you are priests. Side note, in the Old Testament, the priestly caste was limited to the tribe of Levi. And in that sense, only a portion of Israel could carry out the priestly function. Now, All of God's people are priests. You're not under that old system of approaching God. You have a new system to approach God. Or better, a new person in whom to approach God. 
Privilege number one, you're a holy priesthood. Privilege number two, you offer spiritual sacrifices. Now, I know this whole talk of Old Testament sacrifices wigs some of you out. Well, that's because you don't understand the narrative of the Bible. The primary function of Old Testament priests as they ministered in the tabernacle and then in the temple was to offer animal sacrifices to God for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus' death on the cross was the full and final sacrifice. That's why we do not obey the Old Testament sacrificial system any longer. That's why I'm careful not to call this area an altar. But we do according to the text, offer not physical sacrifices. We do offer spiritual sacrifices. What are these sacrifices? They aren't pigeons and turtle doves and bulls and lambs anymore, so what are they? Well, John MacArthur believes that the New Testament sets forth seven basic acceptable spiritual sacrifices for Christians. Uh, Their bodies, uh, their praise, their good works, their possessions, their converts, their love, and their prayers. I'll leave you to a study of that. But spiritual sacrifices match the spiritual house. The repetition emphasizes the fact that everything in the relation of the readers to God through Christ is now altogether spiritual. Truth number three. God gives us a theology. God gives us a theology of why some stones are used and others are not. Peter in these three verses is going to give you a theology of stones from the Old Testament. He will quote quote three separate Old Testament passages. Uh, The the first one is found in verse 6. Notice what it says. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, And whoever believes in him, that stone, will not be put to shame. He's quoting Isaiah 28, which talks about those who trust in the Lord will escape judgment. Those stones that that God chooses to use in his building project will escape all judgment. You may feel isolated or cast off, but dear friend, you are safe because God chose you for his house. You belong to God. George Barner, who founded Barner Group, a well-known organization for conducting surveys, George Barner said, when the final survey comes in, there will be no sampling error. All his stones will be safe. The second quote is found in verse 7. So the honor is for you who believe... Notice how he's separating stones here. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now this is a Psalm 118 quote. Peter eliminates all neutral ground. For those who choose not to be a part of this building program, who reject this cornerstone, they will face judgment. Peter is underscoring the contrasting eternal destinies of non-believers and believers. Those who reject Christ will find that's a decision they will come to regret. Look at the third quote in verse 8. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. 
They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Church, all people everywhere will not be saved. You need to know that. This text points that truth out. Some stones will be saved and some stones will not be saved. Some people will be spared from hell and some people will not. Verse 8 is a really tough verse, but, but not just because of that. The, the difficult verses often seem to produce different interpretations. And the hard phrase in this verse is this one. They disobeyed as they were destined to do. Now, there are two common interpretations here, and I want you to hear both of them and hear, hear them clearly. Interpretation number one, R.C. Sproul sees this as double predestination. Uh, you have election, God's choosing, and then you have reprobation, passing over those who were not chosen. Uh, you see this in the life of Jacob and Esau. God chose Jacob and passed over Esau. Scripture uses stronger wo- words, loved and hated. God chose Jacob and passed over Esau. Neither deserved his mercy, so he has done no injustice to Esau in giving mercy to Jacob. Uh, People complain against this, saying God is unfair to give his mercy to some and not to all. But is it not his mercy to give? This also seems to be the position of Tom Schreiner, who teaches at Southern Seminary in Louisville. He, He adds a nuance. God has destined their disobedience without himself being morally responsible. Uh, The biblical writers never exempt human beings from responsibility, even though they believe God ordains all things. For example, God ordained the death of Jesus Christ, but still indicts those who physically killed Jesus. Everyone is responsible for their actions. No one can say, you destined me to do this. No, you chose to stumble. You chose to reject the cornerstone. If we ask how God can destine that something happen through the willful choice of his creatures, yet himself remain free from blame, well, Wayne Grudem helps us here. When we cannot fully understand how this can be, It is for us simply to be silent before our creator and wait for a fuller understanding in eternity. Clowney says, the wonder is not that God chooses some and not others. The wonder is that God chooses any. Any. Now that's that's the first interpretation. The second interpretation. The second interpretation of this text, and, and both are possible. The second interpretation of this text is represented by John MacArthur. He writes that God doesn't actively destine people to unbelief, but he does appoint judgment and doom on every non-believer as a consequence of their disobedience and refusal to believe. Stephen Davey, whom I quote often, uh, takes the same approach. In other words, you disobey the word, and because you disobey the word, you're destined to stumble. I really don't think either of you does harm to the scripture. To, to this scripture. I'm imagining you lean heavily one way or the other. And um, I think both are good. I'll I'll lean toward the first. Truth number four. Truth number four. You are included in this building project simply by the mercy of God. You are included in this building project simply by the mercy of God. 
Now, I want you to notice the titles bestowed on these readers. Verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Those are all titles for Israel in the Old Testament. And Peter tells these churches that the former privileges of Israel are now theirs. Peter uses extensive Old Testament imagery to show that New Testament believers, both Jews and Gentiles, are in fact the new people of God. Now, I want to walk through each title and then arrive at a big truth that will help you understand your Bibles better and help you understand God's view of you better. Each of these phrases. First, chosen race. Now, there's a practical truth here and then there's a theological truth here. Practically, Peter is telling them, scattered everywhere, Peter is telling them, and you, might I add, that you can't be forgotten, you can't be looked over, you can't be worthless, you can't be insignificant, because God chose you. You belong to him. You're not random. You are chosen. Practical. Theologically, Peter makes a radical claim that those who repent and believe in Christ, whether Jew, Gentile, Galatian, Cappadocian, Asian, Bithynian, though many races, now constitute a new race. A new race. The understanding of Christians that they formed a new race among humanity was precisely one of the points for which they were criticized and persecuted by first century pagans. This is one of the beliefs that made these scattered believers face persecution. They said, we are a new race of people, a redeemed race. The Roman writer Suetonius spoke about this. Then, then God's race, Israel. Now God's chosen race, the church. What race are you? A chosen race. A chosen race first. Secondly, notice the, the next title, a royal priesthood. I like how Eugene Peterson paraphrases this. You are the ones chosen by God, chosen for the high calling of priestly work, chosen to be a holy people, God's instruments to do his work and speak out for him. Remember the first verse of the book called these people exiles? Now, he's built his case and calls them a royal priesthood. <laughs> a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Thirdly, a holy nation. God called Israel his holy nation in Exodus 19. You remember he ordered physical distinctives in food, in clothing, and in circumcision. Let's break down that title, holy nation. Holy, hagios, meaning to separate, set apart. Nation, ethnos, meaning people group. Put them together. Set apart, people group. Now he gives that term to the church. You are a holy nation. But, but we're scattered among many nations. True, but you are my called out nation, my set apart nation. My set-apart people. Fourthly, a people for his own possession. 
I love all the titles. This, this is my favorite. A people for his own possession. You find the same phrase in Isaiah 43 where God bellows, Israel is my chosen people whom I formed for myself. God formed you for himself. Now the transforming truth that I promised. These were all labels that distinguished Israel from other nations. And Peter imputes to these readers in these local churches the status of new Israel. The church's new Israel, his new people. The church is the true Israel of God. And he continues in verse 9. Why, why, are you have, why do you have all of these privileges? Verse 9. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you. The word proclaim means to make widely known, to advertise. When God's people Israel were delivered from Babylonian exile, they were to proclaim the mighty acts, the excellencies of God. God formed this people to praise him. We have here both evangelism and worship. Proclaim the excellencies. He continues, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. One of the catchphrases or mottos of the Reformation 500 years ago was pulled from this verse. In Latin, it's ex tenebras lux. Out of darkness. Light. The word did that. Verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This text reminds us that without the grace of God, none of us would belong to the church. We'd still be in the pit. Peter wants us to remember that God has miraculously included us. He not only reminds us that God has miraculously included us, but he also wants us to remember that God has miraculously pardoned us. Mercy drips from every syllable of verse 9 and 10. He quarries in mercy. Now let's land the plane. I began our time today showing you some beautiful, majestic stone buildings constructed throughout history. This week I was asking the question to myself, why do we build buildings? Thinking about my children, why do little children get fascinated by certain architectural designs? Sarah and I, in our travels to England, have been able to walk into some of the most beautiful cathedrals on earth. We don't build churches like that anymore. We build, we build out boxes now. They built churches like that because they wanted the people to walk in and say, wow, what a beautiful building. It must be built in honor of a beautiful God. They wanted the majesty of the building to point them to the majesty of God. But perhaps our fascination with beautiful architecture and majestic stone buildings goes deeper. Kyle Dugdale, in his Master of Architecture thesis for the Harvard Graduate School of Design, wrote powerfully 
on the role that architecture plays in our post-endemic world. He makes special note that ever since humanity was forced to leave the garden, we have been busy constructing buildings. And making this observation, he observes that as architecture rises, it is in some measure an attempt to replace the sense of being at home. A feeling that has seemed to elude us east of Eden. He writes, and I quote, Architecture has struggled to mitigate the effects of the fall. But the city is a poor substitute for the Garden of Eden. Architecture performs at best the role of a fig leaf, covering humanity's exposure. In the end, it is perhaps not so much a cure as it is an expression of humanity's homesickness. End quote. The Roman Colosseum, a mere fig leaf. The great Parthenon was an attempt to mitigate the effects of the fall. The great pyramid was really just a longing for home. The fig leaves like the Washington Monument and the Taj Mahal may be beautiful, but they can't cover our real need. Enjoy stone buildings built by humans, but never forget that they are merely echoes, heart cries, soul longings for the ultimate stone building that God is in the process of completing right now. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.